All right. So we're at part two of section three, okay? Session three, okay? We're talking about lives in the colonies, and we just got done with the education piece. So we don't have much to go here, but we ran out of time last time. So as I'd mentioned last time, the population was, was explosive. It was 2.5% uh, per year during the 18th century is, is the rate of expansion here. To give you some idea, that means it's doubling every 28 years. Okay? So the total population, estimates are that in 1700, it's about 251,000 people living in the 13 colonies estimate, because there was no census taken till 1790. By 1750, the estimate was 1.17 million. By 1756, two and a half million, okay? Estimate in 1700 in, in New England, the, the upper colonies, about 1,000 people. 50 years later, it's 400,000. Okay? I mean, that's pretty fast expansion. Yeah. For, for various reasons. Okay? So what were the factors that contributed to, to this increase in population? Very high birth rate, low mortality rate, and lots of food available and plenty of fuel so that you stay warm in the winter. Living conditions in the colonies were generally better than they were in any place in Europe by 1750. Okay? The other one is the population is scattered. Rather than in large communities, that means if you've got disease going, it doesn't, doesn't spread very fast. So average age of death, men was 60 women in their mid-40s. If they survived the childbearing years, they often lived into their 60s. As mentioned, no census till 1790. Native Americans were not counted. Yep, took me a while, but I got it. Okay. Okay. 1750 estimates. Majority of the population lived in or near major communities along the eastern seaboard. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that's where everything started and the expansion was, was headed west. Relatively few people live beyond just a few days' travel, okay? You know, my main deal was to turn that on because it was off when I got here. Yeah. Uh, this is part of that. Oh, okay. Just all right. Well, I'm the one that turned it on then. Oh, okay. That's all right. Thank you. So th these are estimates of population in the various colonies in 1750. And you can see that the biggest population is in Virginia, but that makes sense. That was the earliest colony, right? I mean, there was people living elsewhere. There were other, other small groups, but the, this was the first one that the, the British government started two companies in Virginia, okay? 90% of the slaves and indentured servants were in the southern colonies. Well, that makes, makes sense, right? So in the five southern colonies, 40% of the population African-American. South Carolina was 70%. 
North Carolina, get back here. 15%, okay? So you can see you know, we shove them all into in a small area. So some idea of the kind of industry that was going on and the production, uh, this is pound sterling along the left-hand side. And remember, we're trying to go from pounds in 1750 to current day pound sterling, and making that transition is extremely difficult, but the, but the relative amounts remain the same, okay? So big producer, tobacco, then wheat, fish, rice, indigo, and whale oil, okay? Role of the churches, okay? Because this will come later on, we're going to go into a lot of depth about the role of the churches, but just kind of set the stage here. In towns and small communities, these were the primary communication center. And we'll see that when we get into the revolution days that this becomes the, the, the committee for communication will use the, the churches. The, this is the center of family in, in the, these small communities, family, church, that's the center of everything that goes on. Yep. Were Depends on the size of the community. The, the bigger the community, the more probability you have more than one church there, okay? So to give you some idea, here's the, here's the main churches and, and their distribution. The largest, I picked the three largest. Anglican was the largest, was mainly in the north and the middle colonies. Uh, its expansion was 1702 to 1783. They, they sent 600 ministers and 309 missionaries to America from England, Anglican Church there, okay? In this period of time, from 1702 to 1783, all right? Right, okay. So Congregational Church was the other, one of the other big, big three, okay? Uh, it's estimate there was about 575,000 in 658 churches by 1750. Okay, that's a sizable number. Now we've got to be careful about members here, and I'll, I'll come up later. There's a difference between being a member and attending the church. Okay, anybody was allowed to attend, but to be a member, in most cases, you had to have a certain amount of wealth. Okay, and and, and then you were expected to contribute to the church. Okay, because you are a member. The Presbyterians estimated about 400,000 in 543 churches, and um, my family was, was part of this group, and someone once said in the writings, and you could tell where they had been, the Presbyterians, because they built a new church about every 50 miles, okay? So here are other churches that, that were represented there. Dutch Reformed, Quakers, Mennonites, Dunkards, German reform. So, I mean, this is pretty much similar to what it is today. I mean, we've got Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses and th th those folks that came along in the, in the middle 1800s. But this is pretty good representation. That some of these were very small. Sometimes it was just one community. So in the church, the least accepted people were the Catholics. 
It's estimated that by 1776, there were about 25,000 Catholics uh, in the colonies. Catholics were primarily, uh, didn't do well in terms of England because the two major enemies, France and Spain, were, were Catholic. They, dis, they got more discrimination than the Jews. Okay? It's like, no, that's part of that other, other group. Okay? So there weren't very many Jews here. The estimate was it was only about 1,500. And essentially, they just left them alone. Uh, wherever they were at, formed a community because they were self-sustaining. They didn't cause problems. They didn't want to become involved in the government. Okay? They just took care of themselves, wanted to be left alone. In 1740, Parliament allowed colonies to naturalize Jews, but forbid them to naturalize Catholics. Become a citizen. Okay? And not, not all the colonies, but some of them. Okay? No colony allowed Catholics to vote or hold office. It happened a little bit later, but by 1750, none of them. Okay? Same was true for Jews except for South Carolina, which is interesting because that's the one that had the largest African-American population also. Okay? So I don't know why this was, but that, you know, that's the data. Okay? So I'd mentioned this earlier. Attendance was greater than membership. And sometimes we're reading stuff and people say, well, you know, it really wasn't all that, that much of a Christian area. There weren't, weren't that many members that, that attended churches. Well, that number is way different than attendance. As I mentioned earlier, to, to, to get it, to become a member, you had to have a certain amount of financial stability, okay? And also we have all this rural area, so it's very difficult to travel to, to attend church, okay? Sometimes the churches could be 10 or 15 miles away. Well, if you're walking or on horseback, that can be a long ways. So the, the, what we find when we look at the literature is most families just worshiped at home, and it was a father's responsibility to, to see that that happened, okay? In towns and small communities, now we begin to have some churches, and th these will become our key communication centers when we get to the war. So the conclusion, the center of life's activities revolved around family and church, right? Talking about 1750. The Bible was the primary book used to teach children to read. Christian beliefs are defined by scriptures represented as the core of the value system that directed daily life. And I mentioned last time, this is the little primer. There was more of these available than there was population. Okay? So you can send that around. That was the second most popular book next to the Bible. Okay? So this is the other book that I'd talked about earlier. It's called New England, The New England Pulpit and the American Revolution. So if you want to read a dissertation, it's here, okay? First 30 pages of that are good, good material. They, they only had one, the King James. Now, the, they printed it. They started printing it here in the colonies. The ones that they printed did not say King James. Well, think about the difficulty of printing. 
Okay? I mean, all. A, a printed document was not that easy to come by, and it was expensive to do. Yeah. Hmm? I'm sorry? Well, the, the, and the methodology, I mean, you, I mean, you got to print this stuff one page at a time. We didn't have, you know, 10-up presses. Yeah. I mean, we've all seen the deal where, you know, they got a plate laid out and they, you know, run a deal down and they got a big screw that crank on the top of it. And later it was a lever, okay, to, and you have to ink the page, put paper on it, take that page off, put another page on, so... I don't remember offhand. Do you remember when the Amish showed up, John? They, I believe they started showing up in the early 18th century. Uh, and they came over here mostly, well, with the rest of the Pennsylvania Dutch to avoid all the European wars that were fighting over the land they were on. I suspect they were here at this period of time, but not in enough numbers. To be, be obvious. Yeah, they wouldn't have been as identifiable as a group. Did they evolve from another denomination? Oh, yes. But I could uh, I could off hand what no. 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 No, they're German in origin. Okay. German in yeah. back then they used to refer to that as high German and low German and it meant elevation, not not uh, physical elevation, not social status. Right. My suspicion is it probably came out of the Lutheran Church, okay? Maybe the Reformed Lutherans. They were, uh, Anabaptists. Yeah. All right. So now we've kind of set the stage for what life was like for these folks in 1750. I mean, it's it was a good place to be. I mean, lots of food. Okay, the economy was great. A lot of stuff going on, and freedom was easy to come by. Um, and then things start to go backwards. And so we're going to look at the stuff leading up to the cause of the revolution, okay? And we're going to look at it in terms of what was happening in the colonies and then what was England's response to what was happening, okay? So, same purpose as before, we're talking about background. So we can find out about the influence of Christianity on the formation of the country. Uh, we're at session four, which is actually four pieces. Okay, so these are some of the objectives: the cause of the conflict over ownership of the Ohio River Valley. This is this is the big piece. This is this is the king, the linchpin. Okay, for for starting the war and then starting the, the revolution. Okay. So it's the impact then of the French and Indian War had on the relationship between the colonies and England. So the French and Indian War is going to come out of this conflict over ownership. And then the impact the French and Indian War had on the beliefs of the colonies about their ability to defend themselves and take care of themselves. And the impact of a thing called the Proclamation of 1763 on Native Americans and on the colonies. That, that's another very key piece in, in what kicked off the war. Okay? So I'm just going to. This is the order we're going to go through: the ownership of the Ohio Valley, the expansion into the valley, conflict over the ownership. I'm going to 
I'm going to back up here and get the Navigation Acts of 1650-1696 in, in here, although the, they happen much earlier. They impact dramatically at this point in time. Okay? The French and Indian War, financial conditions in France, England, and colonies after the war. Okay? And then this proclamation of 1763, which is uh, dramatic. So here's the way things kind of looked. M remember, we've got these, these drawings in here of what these states look like, but they didn't look like that. Okay? I mean, this is what they look like now. Okay? But nobody was paying much attention to where the border of states ran to other than rivers. Okay? So a river was more of a, a, something that could divide. But, but look at this piece. France claims ownership of this. Okay? And England claims this ownership. Okay? And then we got France and England both claiming some of that. And, uh, and this is Spain here. Okay? Got all of this. Well, hello there. Boundary disputes over, over the Ohio Valley started, started as early as 1749. I think they actually started earlier than that, but it's documented to, to have started by that period of time. So the French claimed all lands that drained the Mississippi, drained into the Mississippi River. So that would include Montana and parts of Canada, because the, you know, the Missouri comes through Montana and into the Mississippi and the Ohio, okay? I mean, that whole thing. So they said, all that's ours. Well, the British claimed everything based upon the Virginia colony area, so it's from the sea to the Mississippi. They said, that's all ours. Pennsylvania claimed the air, all the area that they had purchased from Native Americans. And the Indians, they claimed the same area. They said, no, the Ohio Valley is ours. Now, they're not very large numbers. They figured there's around three to, to 4,000 Native Americans. This is a group that, that became known as the Six Nations. Uh, yep. And, and there was, as near as I can tell, there was also lots of trading. Where at a certain time, you would, get, you would get some tribes coming out of the Midwest, coming into this area to trade. Okay, so it was. So this is the area that's in dispute. Everybody claims ownership to that. And here's a piece that's important. The French had a 100-year trading relationship with the Canadian Indians, who also came in here to, to hunt. Okay. So Virginia decided, why don't we just see if we can create some more problems? 
because they, they claimed that they had about 800,000 acres that was theirs, and they wanted to get, lay claim to that, so they put together a thing called the cabin law, and in the cabin law, you get 400 acres. If you go out into this 800,000 acre place and build a cabin and plant an acre of corn, okay? You do that, you get 400 acres of land, okay? So you're gonna be there a year, build a cabin, plant an acre of corn, Okay. Now, as you can well imagine, that caused a lot of people to want to move out there. All I got to do is survive out there. Okay. So Pennsylvania, where my, where my folks came from, had settlers out in that Ohio Valley at least as early as 1747. Um, my family had built, had built a cabin out there in that area uh, about that period of time. The fur trade in that area had been going strongly since at least 1707. A guy by the name of Alexander McKee, who was a, a British um, Indian agent, was responsible for setting up a number of trade po trading posts out there. Why would the British do that? Well, they, the, they get a piece of money out of the, the beavers that are harvested and sent back to England, okay? They get it on, on the stuff coming in, and then they also get it when you, when you make a hat and sell it. They get a piece of that action. So the colonists believed they were protected under the laws of England and retained all the rights they enjoyed in England. They were English citizens, right? So if I'm an English citizen, I have all the rights of, a, of an English citizen anywhere in the world. Local governments, not parliament, had complete control over local affairs, all right? Well, that created a problem because the British Parliament believed that they had control over any affairs in the colonies that they wanted to have control over. So the colonists are going, no, we're, we're British citizens, but we have our own government here to take care of local affairs. And the Board of Trade is going, no, wait a minute, uh, we'll tell you what you can do and not do. Okay, so a little headbutting at that level. Remember the colonies only existed for one purpose, as far as Parliament was concerned, for the benefit of the mother country. Okay, if there was no benefit to England, then there was no reason to have the colonies. Now this is this step back in time. This Navigation Acts of 1650 and 1696 I mean, by 1750, you can see that they've been, been here for 100 years, but now they become significant. Only British ships can transport goods in and out of the colonies. No other country was allowed to bring goods in or take goods out. And only British citizens are allowed to trade with the colonies. And all commodities shipped from the colonies to other countries must pass through a British port. Okay? So the deal was you send it to England, you pay tax on it, and then you send it, bring it back. And because they got they got restrictive, you couldn't send it from one colony to another. It had to go to England first and come back. Okay? However, the Brits were involved in wars all over the world. 
and, and they didn't try to enforce this stuff very much for a long time. And so the, the colonies, people like Hamilton that had a lot of vessels, from, you know, the, his uncle gave him, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I want to trade with the folks down in South Carolina. All I do is put it on my one of boats and send it down there. I mean, how are they going to know? Okay. Now, to, to make matters worse, they they found out that there was also some folks down here that they could trade with. Okay, because you you know you've got Spain owns all of this that's in red. And Great Britain a little bit, and Holland's got a chunk, and France is here. Uh, I think, yeah, this is Great Britain here and here, and Holland is in here a place, okay? So you've got these other countries that are in the Caribbean, we call the West Indies, okay? And it's like, wait a minute, we can send stuff down there and we can bring rum back, okay? And we can sell the rum, okay? And so let's just do that. So they set up all this trade. I mean, this, this was some of Hamilton's doings as well as a lot of others. It's like, don't worry about, don't worry about those folks in, in England. They, they don't, what they don't know won't hurt them. I mean, it was very prosperous. I mean, you know. And became very independent then. This independent American idea here, okay? So then we get, we got this stuff going on where we got a battle about trade. We got battle about the influence of parliament over our local government. We've got some stuff going on about the Ohio Valley. Uh, we're, we're ignoring the, 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 the British in terms of what we want to pay them. And then along comes the Great Awakening. So this is Whitfield, of course. I mean, there's a lot of other pieces in here. But when I was putting this together, one of the sermons that I ran across that he used, he, he preached several times that had a huge impact on the early days, what we call the Father Abraham sermon. Okay. Out of that, and we're going to go through it here in a minute, the colonies came to realize they had much more in common with one another okay, than they had this battle. And so out of that, they decided they ought, to, they ought to kind of hook arms together. You're not lost, are you? No. Okay, good. Although ordained with the Anglican Church of England, there was not a denominational bone in Whitfield's body. In one of his sermons, preached to several thousand gathered in the open air, Whitfield mimicked a conversation with Father Abraham, who was looking over the banister of heaven at the gathered multitude representing many denominations. Whitfield cried out, Father Abraham, are there any Anglicans in heaven? 
The answer came back, no, there are no Anglicans in heaven. Father Abraham, are there any Methodists in heaven? No, there are no Methodists in heaven. Are there any Presbyterians in heaven? No, there are no Presbyterians here either. What about Baptists or Quakers? No, there are none of those here either. Father Abraham cried Whitfield, what kind of people are in heaven? The answer came back, there are only Christians in heaven, only those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Whitfield then cried out, oh, is that the case? Then God help me, God help us all to forget having names and to become Christians in deed and in truth. So if your community is centered around the church and the beliefs of the church, okay, and the community next door is a different, maybe we got Anglicans here and we got the Congregationalists over there and Presbyterians over here and the Methodists over here, well, we don't get along very well because we got different beliefs. And along, come along comes Whitfield and goes, wait a minute, that's irrelevant, okay? That's not a relevant piece. And, and this had major impact on, pe on people's understanding about the, the, their role and the role of the church, okay? And, and out of this came this understanding that the relationship with Christ is a personal one, not dependent upon the church. And, and that was a new way of thinking. Are you gonna move? All right, so we have this, this deal where we've got, all right, I'm, I'm independent and also I'm, now I'm responsible for stuff. And now we're gonna back up a little bit. We got the French. Remember the French had the own, said they owned this big chunk of land that was everything that, that drained it into the Mississippi? Well, one of the things they did in 1749 is they, they made these lead plates and they sent some folks all up and down the Ohio and then to the Mississippi and they nailed these guys to trees ever so often. And so I had asked someone to, to translate one of these for me. In 1749, in the reign of Louis XV, France, we Soleron, commander of the attachment sent by Monsieur the Marquis de Guedissonnaire, governor general of New France, to establish tranquility in some uncivilized districts, have buried this plate at the mouth of the great Miami River, 31st of August, near the River Ohio, otherwise beautiful river. As a monument to the renewal of possession we have taken of said River Ohio and lands on both sides of its tributaries to their sources, as enjoyed or ought to have been enjoyed by the preceding kings of France, as they have there maintained themselves by arms, and especially by the treaties of Reswick, Utrecht, and Aix-la-Chapelle. So essentially what this is saying is not only do we claim it now, but we claim it, we've had it forever. This has always been ours, okay? Because remember they had been in Canada since the late 1500s and, and somehow they figured out, you know, this river went down and so we're just gonna claim all that.
Yeah, I mean, they, they started their identification up in Canada, right? Well, you get up in Canada, the rivers that flow into the Mississippi are not that big. So, remember the French claim ownership all lands west of the Appalachian Mountains because that's, that's, that's what drains into the Ohio Valley and, and into the Mississippi. So to control the lands west of the Appalachian Mountain, they intended to build a series of forts all the way from Quebec to New Orleans. And somehow the British found that information out. I don't know how, but, and I haven't run across that. But, but at the point in time we're at, here in 1753, okay, they had built three forts that we know of, and they were getting ready to build a fourth one at, at what's called the Forks, where the Monongahela and the Allegheny come together to flow into the Ohio. This is the, called the Forks of the Ohio, these two rivers. Okay? So this is where we're at here. Okay? Here's Lake Erie. This is this little corner of Pennsylvania. Okay? And some of these other towns will get, get more important as we go along here. Okay? So here are the forts. I can't pronounce that one, but, but this one's Fort Leboeuf. I got, I got that one figured out. Okay? And, and this one was done, and th these were all substantial forts. I mean, the, the French had this fort building thing down to a pretty fine science. They, they, they did a masterful job here. This is the fort that they're getting ready to build, is Fort Duquesne. This is at the forks of the river. And, and my wife keeps saying, I don't know how you get Duquesne out, out of that. And I said, I don't know either. I don't speak French. But I know that that's how that's pronounced, OK? All right? So, so he, he, here are the forts, one, two, three. And this is the one that they're getting ready to build. And somehow, the governor of Virginia got word of that. Okay? And, and by the way, that will become Fort Pitt later which is where Pittsburgh is at today, okay? So the Virginia colony also claimed this same area. Virginia said, no, no, this, this is our land here, all right? So it's hard. sometimes I'm reading stuff, and I think he's the lieutenant governor, and other times he's the governor. I don't, he became the governor. I don't know at this stage which pad he had on, but, but this, is, this is Dimwitty, okay? Dinwiddie, okay, nice name, okay. He draws up a document setting forth the nature of the extent of the English claim. This is our land, and essentially saying to the French, you need to cease and desist, pick up your stuff, and leave. Now, he had to get that to somebody. I mean, just writing it in Virginia is not going to help, right? So he, he hired a guy, this, this young surveyor, about 21-year-old George Washington, who was a major in the local militia. And he said, I want you to take that document and go up to Fort Leboeuf. It's, a, it's a, just an easy, quick 500 miles away, and, and give this to the, to the general there. Okay? So I also gave him an interpreter, a guy by the name of Christopher Grist, that I have read quite a bit about. He was pretty he was pretty famous in the 1700s dealing with the Native Americans. Spoke a number of, of Native American languages. Some documents also say, back here. Oh. Some documents say that, that the half king, oh, the chief half king, was part of the contingency that went there. Others say he didn't come along until later. But 
So, but he gets involved here. So here's where we're at. We're clear down here. Okay? And he's going to send George up to here. Now, there are other places along the way that will become, for, become important as we, as we go along here. Here's, here's Fort Duquesne. There's a place, there's going to be a thing called uh, Fort Necessity, and it's at the place called Great Meadows, okay? And it, it's, a, it's a name that Washington is going to give it, okay? It doesn't have a name before he gets there. So he's got to travel from here up here to talk to the French, okay? So he gets up there. They're, they're polite to him. Okay? I mean, he wrote a journal about this, journal this whole thing. They were polite to him. They didn't want to read the document, had no interest in discussing who owned anything. It's like, we'll feed you, but you need to, to get on your, your boat and go home. Okay? So George and his little group that went with him returned back to Williamsburg. It took them 11 weeks. Now, I don't know whether they were on a raft or not, but it's a, it, it's a nice painting, okay? So this is his journal, and this journal is available online if you want to read the details of the, of the trip, because he did an excellent job of writing where they were at and what they were doing and what they had to eat and what they saw. So we got back to talk to the governor and the governor took this before the legislature, which is called the House of Burgess in, uh, in Virginia, and they concluded that the refusal of the French to even read the documents to engage uh, in a discussion was an act of war. Okay? So he also said, listen, not only is it an act of war, we've, we've got to drive them out of the country. So he sends a guy by the name of Trent, Okay? along with 41 Virginians, and, and wants them to go up and build a fort at the Forks. Now, this is the design of the fort that he was going to build. And he was going to call it Prince George. And if you read in the literature, you'll find often they're talking about Trent's fort. The guy's name was William Trent. Okay? But he was going to name it Prince George. So he started building it in January of 1754. Now, I've not been to Pennsylvania in January. Okay? Uh, but I've been to the East Coast in January, and I can't imagine wanting to go build a fort there in January, okay? So it didn't go well. The, the French had been there. They had staked out the place, okay? He shows up. They find out he's there, and they send a 1,000 French regulars and, and militia uh, on April the 17th, 1754, they captured him, then turned him loose, essentially just go away, okay? And they burnt down his fort, and then later they built Fort Duquesne. And this is the fort that they built. Compare that to the little round thing that Trent was about to build. So somehow the word gets back to Dinwiddie, okay? And it's unclear how he gets the information. But it gets back to him. And so by now, Washington has been promoted to lieutenant colonel. And he sent him, and we know the half king went with him, and a force of 159 militia 
to secure the forks. Uh, literature is unclear exactly how many men were with him, but it's somewhere between 150 and 250. It's not a large contingency, okay? Oh, yeah, it was. Right. Yeah, the half king brought a, a large group with him, okay? Because remember, I don't think the half king was interested in the British having control of that, but it was also not interested in the French having control. This, 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 is, this is his property, okay? This belongs to the Native Americans, okay? And the French Indians, okay? Uh, so I'm not sure what his motive was, but I don't think it was to help the British all that much, okay? All right, so there's going to be a lot goes on here. So we're going to start out down here, okay? And this is our path, and I've kind of expanded it over here. <coughs> Here's the forks right there, right here, okay? So we're going to, we're going to get this at Jamaville Glen. We're going to run into that place, and then Fort Necessity will be here. This is also the, uh, the Great Meadows is right here, okay? So this is this little chunk up here. This path is going to get interesting as we go along because from here up it's called Braddock's Road. Okay? And we'll find out why it was called Braddock's here in a few minutes because uh, General Braddock's not going to make it back. Okay? And this is going to be a disaster area. Okay? So May 24th, about 60 miles from the fork, they set up camp in the Great Meadows. Okay. On the 27th of May, some, some local Indians who were, were all friendly said there are 50 French-Canadian Indians about 15 miles away. French and the French Indians. Okay. And so on the night of May 27-28, Washington attacks them with a band of 40. Now, literature is unclear about who started the battle. Some stuff said that he showed up there and the French attacked. Others said, no, no, the French were on a mission to, to bring information to him. They wanted to have a parley about this deal, and they just jumped him. So we're going to look at, at what the area looks like here in a minute. But the French leader on Ensign Jamaville was taken prisoner, and thus it becomes the Jamaville Glen. Okay? He'd only been in custody a few hours when the half-king killed him. Okay? along with nine others that they had captured. And the story is that it was because of a difficulty that he had had with this same ensign previously, okay? Or it was just an opportunity. But, but this is the area. This is where the battle took place, see? So this, these are photos from today. I mean, not today day, but recently, okay? So the, the story is that here's the British and here's the French down there. They came up over the bluff and, and massacred them, okay? Other stories said, no, they, that didn't happen. They, they came in down here and the French were up here, okay? Well, I don't know who was where, but what I do know is there was a battle, okay? 
and it didn't go well, okay? So they captured these folks and they returned back to the Great Meadows back here. Here's, here we are at the Great Meadows and we're going to build a fort here, okay? So this is June 9, 1754. They're there at the Great Meadows. And remember the 41 Virginians that went with, with Trent, okay? Well, what's left of those, they show up, okay? Come out, out of the woods. So, so now he's got those folks. And now his, George Washington's documents said he now had 283 men and officers. So either he started out with more than 150, or Trent had more than 41, or he picked up people along the way, or none of the numbers are correct. All right? But he had a group here, okay? Here was a key. One French survivor that was, had been captured escaped and made it back to Fort Duquesne. So George says, all right, we're all here. We've got to do something, so let's build a fort. And they called it Fort Necessity, which makes sense. It was necessary. To build, and it was built in a terrible place. It was kind of in a bog. Okay? Well, George might have been a good surveyor, but picking spots to build a fort wasn't one of his strong suits. Okay? And he had this, this berm that they did all around it, except this, this whole thing flooded. Okay? So he said, we're going to do this and we're going to wait for reinforcements because they sent word that they needed reinforcements. The reinforcements never showed up. Okay? But the French did. So July 3, 1754, the French arrived with about 800 men. Okay? And Washington and the surviving men that were there surrendered on July 4. So George was pretty embarrassed about the whole thing. But notice his words. This is out of his diary. I have heard the bullets whistle, and believe me, there is something charming in the sound. Now, you want to keep that in mind after we do the Braddock deal, because his whole, his whole demeanor, the things that he writes about war, changes dramatically between now and, and, and Braddock's battle. Okay? All right? So look at the losses. French Indian got you know, three, 17 wounded. British, 31 dead and 70 wounded. I would have surrendered too. Now, it was not unusual in this period of time. What are you going to do with all these prisoners? All right? You essentially, you, you might hold a few, but you don't want to have to feed them either. So why don't you just gather up your stuff and leave? Okay? And we're going to have people track you for a while. Okay? If you turn around, we'll just shoot you. All right? So just keep going. Well, let's see. As crazy as it sounds, these really were gentlemen, okay, on, on both the French and, and the English, okay? And you don't just indiscriminately kill people, okay? Yeah. So, word gets back to England, finally, 
Okay? And the, the British cabinet saw this, said war is inevitable, we're going to have to go to war against the, the French, and they said their colonists are not, we're not a threat to the French. I'm not sure why we have this problem, but they're not, not a threat. However, this is an opportunity for us to, to go to war against the French. Remember that England and France have been both allies and a battle with one another for almost 300 years. I mean, this is, they just look for an opportunity to do that, okay? The colonists had no military force, okay? They had never undertaken to defend themselves. Remember, they thought they were British citizens, and you know, the, the king will take care of this. They had no funds to build a fort or equip an army. Uh, and it's obvious from George's design of the fort, <coughs> they had no skills either for, for building forts. Okay? So they were instructed by the British, by Parliament, for the colonies to cultivate a friendship with the six nations, remember the, the, the Native Americans, and renew the treaty with the Iroquois Confederacy. Okay? Make friends, renew the treaty. Okay? And then in that process, somebody, some, some small group, said, I think there's a better way. I mean, we've got this problem going on. We're, we're better if we're all together than we are if we're individual colonies. So, so let's, let's get the king's approval to kind of form us into, into a more co cohesive group. So they said a union of the colonies under one government for their common defense. Well, he ought, to buy it. he ought to buy that, right? And they were going to get a representative from the king from each of the colonies. We've got 13 king's representatives here, okay? And they wanted this group to have the power to declare war and peace, to negotiate treaties, to purchase land from the, from the Indians, to regulate trade, to settle new colonies, to adopt measures for the general defense, and collect taxes. Now, my suspicion is if they'd have stopped right up here after they declare war and negotiate peace, the, the Parliament, the Board of Trade, might have, might have went with them. But when you, when you get down here where regulate trade, settle new colonies, adopt measures, here, okay? I'm pushing on the wrong button half the time here. So you get down here about this deal of collecting taxes and regulating trade. You know, from what we know about the, the period of time, the probability of the Board of Trade accepting that was not good. This flag that we see occasionally, the join or die, was the, wasn't a flag initially. It was, was in, in some pamphlets and news, in some newspaper articles. And they were saying to all the colonies, you ought to join us here or we're going to die here. Oh, we, we need to have a, a better way of doing this. Okay? <clears throat> so now we're back here to the fort issue. Okay? Here we are at the forks. Okay? Here is the fort that will eventually be built, okay? And this is a little closer look of, I mean, nobody's there with a the photograph, you understand, but, but we have the drawings that the French did, and there's enough remnants and enough stuff left over to go. It, it looked about like it. <laughs>